The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. John Foreman is a partner at Harrison Pensa in London, Ontario, and his practice focuses almost exclusively on plaintiffs' class action work. And he joins me this afternoon to talk about a settlement that has been reached in the Canadian lawnmower horsepower labeling class action, totally more than $7.5 million. Hi, John. Hi, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. This is this is fascinating. I have a whole bunch of questions for you. Uh, but first, just want to start with the obvious. What is this lawsuit all about? Great question. So we spent eight years litigating this case, uh, and it concerns a controversy. Um, and I call it a controversy because none of the lawnmower manufacturers admitted to legal responsibility for this. Uh, but there was a controversy about whether the horsepower labels that went on lawnmowers over a period of time, certain lawnmowers in Canada, um, accurately reflected the actual power that was in the lawnmower, the engine itself. And the theory of our case was that there was a relationship between the price charged for the mower and the horsepower label that was affixed to the mower. And so the theory was there was some overcharging going on uh, to the extent that we would be successful proving some controversy around the actual horsepower in these lawnmower engines. So uh, how or, or, or who was able to discover this? Good question. So there was a U.S. lawsuit brought on behalf of um, consumer interests specifically that challenged the behavior of certain lawnmower makers. And um, that gave rise to some questions north of the border because there isn't a lot of um, manufacturing of lawnmowers in Canada. Typically what we're getting are imported mowers from the U.S. or even overseas. And so if there was a problem in the U.S., that suggested there'd be a problem in Canada. So we investigated. We determined that there were signs that there was a controversy here as well. And we determined there was some consumer enthusiasm to take up the cause. And uh, as I say, we spent eight years litigating the case, and it resulted in these settlements of about $7.5 million across the board. Um, these are these are not easy cases from a legal perspective. It's important to add that. there's When I call it a controversy at the beginning, what I mean is the plaintiffs alleged a problem and the defendants say, no, there's no problem here. We're doing things the way we're supposed to do them. And one of the controversies at the center of it was there are actually engineering standards out there for horsepower labeling. And even the engineering standards allow some significant play, they call it, meaning that they allow room for statement of a horsepower figure that isn't exactly what the horsepower testing would have shown. And so the defendants were saying to us, well, there's flexibility in the testing standards and we're adhering to those standards for the most part. We disagreed and we asserted that there were there was a problem here and that there was a problem with the pricing of these mowers. And the area that we thought was the most significant, or at least the where the greatest controversy was, was with walk-behind lawnmowers of five horsepower or more. What we found was there were very few um, push mower engines out there that produced horsepower of five or more on a legitimate basis. And so we challenged it on, on that theory. And of course, the defendants resisted and pushed back and disagreed. And in the end, compromises were reached, resulting in these $7.5 million settlement. So you're saying it, it, it's not unusual to have a, a lawnmower that has five horsepower, and yet they were putting the engines at 30 horsepower? Uh, sorry, um, for walk-behind mowers or push mowers, no. You would see them top out maybe around seven or six and three quarters. Um, the 30 or less applies to um, lawn tractors and riding mowers. And so this segment of the market where 
the small it's actually the small engine segment which is on the engineering standard is 30 horsepower or less and so that includes riding mowers now um, i mentioned to you that the push mowers were the most significant piece and it was the five and above um, when it came to the riding mowers, again, there, were, there was controversy there, but there was very little in the way of indication that there was heavy overstatement uh, of riding mower horsepower because, as you can appreciate, if you were buying a 20 or a 24 horsepower um, engine, you'd have a sense of that because it's, we're talking about greater horsepower and we're talking about a consumer expecting greater horsepower performance. When you're down in the lower numbers, it's pretty hard for a consumer to tell the difference between a, a four horsepower or a six or even a seven horsepower engine. I, I just don't understand how this happens. So is it basically a group of competitors get together and they're like, okay, we're going to all agree on this lie and stick with it so our story is the same? That, that's the theory of the case. And again, they would dispute that and not agree with it. And they would certainly say they didn't admit to that. But that's exactly what we alleged in the case. And so the theory was that there was some a version of anti-competitive price fixing going on where these competitors agreed to allow each other to label, uh, up-label the horsepower on these engines during the period of time at issue without challenging them as competitors in the marketplace so that it was effectively the theory of the case was it was easier for them to do business if they did it this way and it was easier for them to make more money if they did business this way. This makes me think immediately about uh, the bread price fixing scandal. And uh, I, I was one of, I'm sure, thousands that applied for their $25 card from Loblaws or from Save on Foods or maybe yeah. both. Uh, yeah. Is that the same kind of idea? Competitors, they get together, they put something that is above market value, but they're like, if we all agree on it, no one will know any differently. Is this kind of how this happens? That, that's exactly the theory. And so the law that we relied on in this case is the Competition Act, which is a federal statute in Canada. And the bread case also engages the the very same uh, piece of law and uh, asks the same questions. It's effectively where competitors behave as friends and uh, don't compete with each other on on some level to the the alleged detriment of the marketplace. Exactly. Wow. Now, how do we as consumers even know that this is happening, that we're, that either the information that we're seeing on a lawnmower or the price that we're seeing on a loaf of bread that we're buying is accurate, or, or how do we just look at it and say, no, I think we're being duped here? So th- th- this is a great question that you ask. A lot of my practice is dedicated to price fixing or competition law work. So I spend a lot of time handling cases covering a wide range of products where there are competitive, competitive or anti-competitive legal controversies and questions. And so how do you know? Um, I can tell you this, that generally speaking, the Canadian economy is a strong economy with a good system of laws. Uh, it's a generally a competitive economy with ethical business actors. That's generally how our economy is. But price fixing can and does occur And it does occur specifically in some areas on a repeated basis, and that's where you have what they call a commoditized product, something where competitor A's product doesn't differ too greatly from competitor B's. And the only differential between those two products might be the price. And if that's the case, those competitors are worried about whether demand drops for their price or for their product, and if it does, they'll have to drop their prices. And they don't want to do that. And so the question becomes, do they get together to avoid reacting to demand uh, in order to keep their prices up? And so 
you know, the temptation is certainly consistent in the market that if competitors could, if they were willing to engage in the risks of that kind of behavior and they thought they could get away with it, you might see them doing it. So the bread case is an example where that's alleged. Um, I've acted on a number of other cases, including a really prominent one years ago involving uh, memory chips and computers called DRAM. And that was a case where there was literally a global conspiracy between a very small number of companies who manufactured 90% of the world's supply of DRAM. And during the alleged period there, they, they were alleged to have gotten together and to resist the effects of demand on the marketplace and to raise their prices notwithstanding what demand would have dictated. So it's a very complicated area of law, a controversial, controversial area of law as well, because the defendants come forward often with a range of defenses saying why what they did was not illegal and perfectly appropriate. And the plaintiffs on the other side, the people I act for, are saying, no, this is not competitive behavior, and these are injurious behaviors to the marketplace, and they hurt the Canadian economy at large. I still remember having a lawyer on the show almost two years ago now, and it was talking about foam for cash. And that was the same idea, that there was a certain type of foam in sofas and mattresses and chairs, and that had had price-fixing scandal, and you could end up submitting for a $20 check. It sounds like this is not unusual, but I'm just wondering, is this your job? Is it it other lawyers like you that you're just kind of looking for those red flags, like a company's product should be worth more than another competitor's and because they're so similar that's what raises your eyebrows or or what what's the thing that kind of jumps off the page that there might be something more to this than what we're seeing it's a great question um certainly you know the class action area part of the design of it across canada so in in each of the provinces in canada almost every single province and territory has some form of legislation that allows class actions the idea of it there is that Groups of people with small claims could band together, hire a single lawyer, and prosecute a a case that for each individual is quite small, but for the collective is very large. So it's all about rebalancing economics of litigation. And one of the um, key aspects there is the price-fixing aspect. This is an area where it's really not possible for people, average, average people in the Canadian marketplace, to take up litigation as individuals to challenge this kind of behavior. It's so complicated, so expensive to litigate, and the value of their personal claims is quite small. And so when class actions come along, it allows all of them to band together and the economics of their claims to be banded together so that the litigation now becomes an economical viability. It's possible to challenge this kind of conduct. Lawyers like me can can take on this kind of case. We're sophisticated about the indicia of a price-fixing agreement, the impacts of it, You know, even those that are sophisticated, they're very challenging cases to prosecute. It's about the most complicated thing you could do in law. And so it's it's counted on people like us to look for the signs and to do the things that are necessary to try to protect consumer and other business interests in the course of a case like this. And the most likely thing you will see is you'll see a regulator somewhere, like in the United States, the Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission or some other entity there. They're quite aggressive about investigating and prosecuting price fixing. In Canada, we have a bureau called the Competition Bureau. Its responsibility is to investigate competition-related offenses in Canada. And they do uh, investigate um, price fixing controversies here, although less actively than the United States. And so often people like me will see some indication that there's a regulatory investigation underway, and that'll lead us to conduct a private investigation, which may or may not lead to a civil action like this. 
I uh, the biggest question we're getting on our text line right now is: Have you looked into the price fixing of gas or diesel? And I want to go there next with John Foreman, who's a partner at Harrison Pensa in London, Ontario, and he focuses almost exclusively on class action work. A settlement has been reached in the Canadian lawnmower horsepower labeling class action totaling 7.5 million dollars if you want more information on this lawnmowers sorry lawnmowersettlement.ca john foreman is my guest he's behind this class action lawsuit and john people are wondering before we talk about some of the other things that maybe you you could be pursuing or maybe you already are pursuing is there a payoff here like the the bread price fixing scandal where we could submit information for for 20 or 25 dollars back Yes. So what we have uh, is a settlement claims website at lawnmowersettlement.ca, just as you described. And there, there is a really simple claims process that we've designed for people to take advantage of. And there are um, categories of claims that can be made that provide compensation ranging from $15 per claimant to $55. So if you had a riding mower, for example, you'll input that you had a riding mower and you'll input the horsepower that you had on that mower and you'll get uh, sorted according to one of those slots. We've designed it so that it's a really simple user interface and that most of it can pre-populate where you can literally pull down a scroll bar and select the brand of the mower and the horsepower and so on. So we encourage people to go have a look there and see if they qualify. Um, it's not every mower that was made in Canada during the relevant time frame. It's certain mowers. Uh, and so we encourage people to go see if the mower that they bought fits into the category that's compensable here. It does seem like quite an exhaustive list. Uh, it looks looks like just about every brand of lawnmower is listed here. Everything from Ferris and Gravely to Honda, Husqvarna, Noma, Poulin, Toro, Snapper, Swisher. That's just a few. Yeah. Jacobson, John Deere, Lawn Boy, Mastercraft, Master Cut. These, these are all brands that we know and love. A lot of us are brand loyalists to this. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. What kind of uh, ripple effect could this have on some of these brands? Um, well, I can tell you this, that the horsepower labeling, if you were to go to a, a retailer now and to see the lawnmowers that are on the floor there, uh, very few of them have a horsepower label on them anymore. The industry has shifted to a different metric for measuring power, and it's CCs or other torque-related uh, measurements, and those are seen from an engineering perspective to be more accurate and less less. Uh, capable of the kind of controversy that's come up in, in this litigation. And you'll see that the end of the time frame was a, a mower bought before 2012. And the 2012 time frame is where that transition started to occur. And so the industry, I, I think, whether they'll admit it or not, they recognized they had an issue when it came to horsepower labeling, and it was time to convert the way they were expressing power on the labels of those mowers. So if there was a change for those brands, it was done back in 2012. I... I have to ask because literally it's the one question that's coming in over and over again on the text line. Have you looked at price fixing when it comes to fuel? Is that maybe the <laughs> most obvious in the world? We see one gas station switches from 98.9 down to 98.7 and the one next to it is doing the exact same. It is the question that we get uh, most often. You're right, and I'm not at all surprised to hear that your listeners are, are asking the question. So I'm going to help you here because the gas question illustrates exactly how complicated price fixing and competition law is. And I'll start by giving you a funny phrase. It's called conscious parallelism, and, and that's a legal term. And what it means is people 
competitors can look at what the other is doing if it's in plain sight. So let's say that you and I each sell something and we each put our price on a sign that all the public can see and that the other can see. And so I can see your price and you can see mine. It is not illegal to operate in a fashion that is consciously parallel. So when you see your competitor put up a new price, the gas companies would say they're actually competitive with each other because they're matching or trying to beat the other price or whatever the case may be. It might be by a penny or who knows what. And so the gas example where people are frustrated because they see the gas price go up at one station and the one kitty corner across the street goes up as well, um, there's usually a common message making its way through the network that, it's time to raise prices due to something that's going on with an international pricing metric on crude or something of that nature. And so when the one competitor does it and the other competitor can see it, they react and they say they're reacting for competitive purposes to remain competitive in the marketplace. And so that conscious parallelism thing, it's not illegal. Now, there are some examples where gas companies have been um, found guilty of engaging in price fixing. And there were some examples in Ontario and Quebec going back a number of years where the, the operators were not consciously parallel. Instead, what they had done was gotten together and reached an agreement as to how they were going to manage pricing. So that's the opposite of watching independently what the other does and reacting to that as a competitive matter. Instead, what they were doing was ignoring what the real demand factors would be in the market and instead agreeing on a price that wasn't competitive. And so in those examples, gas companies were found to have been uh, misconducting themselves under competition law. But most commonly, what you're seeing is a classic example of conscious parallelism, which is not illegal. So it's frustrating frustrating to me and frustrating to many consumers, but that unfortunately is the general legal answer to the gas question. Oh, John, I wish I had an hour more with you. I've, I've got to go to news. Uh, I'll, I'll direct people to lawnmowersettlement.ca and also harrisonpensa.com if you want more information on John Foreman. Um, uh, people, the questions are coming in about what about cell phones? We know about our wireless rates here. They're higher than anywhere else. Uh, people want to know about cigarettes and liquor. I'll have to have you back on the show. <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much. I appreciate you bringing some attention to this. We've worked hard for eight years and we, won't, we hope people uh, will take advantage of this uh, program that we've got for them. So thanks for the time. Thank you so much. That's John Foreman. Again, he's a partner at Harrison Pensa in London, Ontario, and he focuses almost exclusively on class action work. If you think you've got something... Check it out. First of all, lawnmowersettlement.ca. If you've bought a lawnmower anywhere between, I think it's 1999 uh, or 1994 and 2012, you could get some money back there. And then harrisonpensa.com. The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad.